This is Welcome Home Radio from the Fresno Association of Realtors on 940 ESPN. Well, good morning and welcome to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host on our Valley's most informative real estate talk show. This hour is being brought to you by the Fresno Association of Realtors and our many connections, contacts, and affiliates. And with that, we can bring you some really good information. And as we are about to head to the uh, voting polls this week, this coming week, we, uh, I thought it would be very appropriate if we tried to clear up a lot of the confusion around a ballot initiative out there uh, called Prop 13. So no better person to answer this question than um, our connections at the California Association of Realtors. Uh, we have here Liza Negretti, who is the Vice President of Political Affairs for CAR. Good morning. Liza? Good morning, Don. Yeah, thank you very much for agreeing to take your time and helping us clear this up. But I think before we get into the weeds on Prop 13, um, that I should call it the 2020 Prop 13, can you tell us a little bit about what CAR does at the state legislature and what you do? Sure. So the California Association of Realtors uh, represent over 200,000 uh, realtors statewide. Our members uh, represent people from all walks of life, including folks from all uh, or, uh, political spectrum. So we have um, people that truly represent not only um, California very well, but just the diversity that exists in uh, the United States in terms of uh, political representation. Um, and so that also means that the issues we work on are very broad. And uh, our board of directors is made up of 800-plus volunteers. And based on our committee system that has to be approved by the board of directors, uh, the lobbying team in Sacramento takes direction and either supports, sponsors, or opposes legislation that is uh, coming up um, in the Capitol uh, based on how it impacts real estate. Um, aside from that, there's a lot of things that we do, um, and that's where my role comes in, to educate not only our members, but also the public about the things happening in the Capitol. So for example, while the lobbying team is advocating on behalf of the real estate industry inside the Capitol, I'm making sure that uh, realtors across the state know of the positions of their own legislators, and that the public is aware that the legislators may be making changes that may impact either home ownership or their ability to buy a home. And so that's, that's what we do. Okay. And I, so actually you provide a resource for our 200,000 realtor members throughout the state of California. And, um, and that's what I'm hoping that you'll do today on three different initiatives that have to do with property tax or may not have to do with property tax. That's what will get cleared up. Um, so do you actually speak with the legislators or uh, do you just interpret their, their legislation? Uh, so I personally do speak with the legislators, um, but I speak to them um, more from 
uh, a political perspective in the sense that we educate realtors about the legislation that's happening across the street, and then our members uh, serve as the voice of real estate. So once a year, we have our legislative lobby day in Sacramento, and uh, we help our members understand those key policies impacting their business. And then we set up meetings and appointments with the legislators, and then uh, they hear uh, directly from our members the issues that are impacting our industry. Uh, we do have a team of lobbyists that speak directly to the legislators about uh, the concerns of our members based on the board of direction, uh, board of directors direction, um, which comes from the meetings we have. And, you know, I think it was so well said a couple of years ago, your former boss, Alex Creel, um, I asked, he was on the show and I asked him the question, what is a lobbyist? And his answer was perfect. He said, an educator. They're there to educate the legislature on those issues. Because if you think about it, what legislature, leg, legislator can be so smart that they know everything about pharmaceutical medicines, they know all about real estate, they know all about criminal laws, they, they need the help from the streets. And that's where the realtor organization comes in. And it is, I, you know, I, I've been involved in it. I can say that. It's really a great thing to see things come from a committee. Maybe the committee has 50 people in it, and they're debating it, and they come up with a policy recommendation on an issue, and then it moves up the line through the legislative committee and then on to executive, and then the board of directors, and then you're given a job to do. So yeah, it, you're correct. It, it's absolutely the basis of democracy um, when people and groups uh, such as ours, um, have the ability to communicate and educate the legislators is very important and as well as hold them accountable when, when they are not being responsive um, to the request of our members. So if something, if, if an issue is they're not being responsive to it, what can we do? Because I understand that sometimes things go through the legislature and sometimes they go through initiatives. Why does that happen? Yeah, so uh, when everything goes as planned and, uh, you know, the legislators listen and are in agreement with um, how we are trying to portray our issues, it all goes well, and usually we have a bill or legislation that comes out of it. But not every single issue works out that way. So let's say, for example that the legislators passed something that we were adamantly opposed to. Uh, uh, there's a process called the referendum process, which allows voters uh, to bring the issue before the voters and actually change what the legislature voted on, and the legislature can't go back and change that. Um, so we're seeing uh, that happen this year with um, Assembly Bill 5, which is not a real estate issue, but it is a big issue. It changed the way that um, independent contractors are defined in the law, and a lot of the tech companies such as Uber are concerned how those changes will impact their industry. So Uber, along with other uh, rideshare companies and technology companies, are bringing forth a referendum that they're trying to qualify um, so that the voters can make sure 
that that law is changed and in essence reverses any decisions that the legislature has made. Um, the initiative process uh, is an idea that is brought forth by the voters and surpasses the legislature altogether. And uh, it is a very expensive process because uh, you have to file for ballot title. Uh, that usually is not the most expensive part. You know, after you file for ballot title, uh, they, uh, the Secretary of State clears you for circulation to gather signatures, and that's where it gets very expensive. Because, uh, for example, right now the requirement for signatures for a constitutional change is more than 900,000 signatures um, for which you have to gather a significant number more than that to be able to qualify. So, for example, I know we will talk about Sierra's initiative later, but we've gathered a historic number of signatures for that initiative, about 1.4 million, uh, way more than is needed, but because we know that when you gather signatures, uh, there are a number of them that might either be repeated or invalidated, and there's a cost per signature associated um, with all of those. So for example, we started about $4 per signature, and by the time we concluded our program, we were paying about $7 per signature. So it can get very expensive to go that route, uh, but it is um, a way for citizens to move forward an idea that it's not being addressed by the legislature. Well, and I'm glad we got more than we need because I have to admit, I think I signed twice. I'm one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that I'd done it the first time. So. Well, we appreciate the support, but that's why we have to get more than necessary because we do expect some of those will be duplicates. Yeah. All right. You, did you expect it from me, though, Liza? <laughs> Don't answer <laughs> that. <laughs> answer that offline as we go to our first commercial break. So stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio 940 ESPN. Well, welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host. And today we have a special guest, and that's Liza Negretti from the California Association of Realtors in the Sacramento area. She is the vice president of political affairs for our 200,000-plus membership. And um, she's been talking about what CAR does uh, in Sacramento for us and for housing. But here's a big one that's out there right now. And I have to admit, a lot of confusion. So much confusion, I've almost decided to get off of social media. <laughs> Excuse me. And that is Proposition 13 that's on the ballot that we're going to be voting on by Tuesday. Um, Liza, can you shed some light on that? Is Some people say this repeals the 1978 Prop 13. Others say it has nothing to do with it. So what, what's the true story? The true story is that there is a Prop 13 that voters will get uh, to decide this coming Tuesday, but it has nothing to do with the original 1978 Prop 13 that was already passed by the voters. The way that um, the state numbers of propositions is that they just recycle the numbers. And so since 1978, Prop 13 hasn't been reused. This just happened to be the year when Prop 13 
number uh, was put back into circulation. And so now we have a school bond act with that assigned number, but it is not um, connected to the original Prop 13. It is a school bond um, and it authorizes um, school bonds. So if, you, if, if people are, you know, supporting or want to look into that, of course, it is always important to make sure they read their ballot pamphlet so they understand fully what that school bond uh, means for uh, the changes that uh, it will require. You know, it almost makes me think that just as they do in sports, you know, they're, they're retiring Kobe Bryant's number, even Gianna Bryant's number. Um, there's certain propositions that should have their number retired, and this would have been one of them. I agree, and there's a lot of talk about that. Um, and retiring numbers is as full of bureaucracy as a lot of things that uh, are when you think about changing things in government. So I think we are far from that, but I, there is discussion that some numbers just have such a strong connection to an issue that um, we need to make sure that you know there is a distinction there. And I have heard that there's a lot of confusion about the Prop 13 appearing on the ballot on Tuesday and people thinking that it is the exact same one from 1978 or an attempt to repeal it. It is not. It is a school bond act. Okay. Now, let's dive into the school bond act and what it does. So people aren't going to be voting saying, oh, you know, I'll vote yes because it's not repealing the original Prop 13, but yet they're not going to vote no because they don't just like bonds or indebtedness. Um, so what does these bonds go to? So, so the School Bond Act is exactly what it sounds like, as you mentioned. It authorizes um, the government to borrow money to help fund schools, particularly um, you know, school facilities and other uh, costs associated with um, updating our school system. Uh, so that's what a bond is um, one of the things that uh, the bond does is it does allow local school districts and, and governments to impose some fees on new developments in order to pay for some of these bonds. Some of the money would also come from the state through matching funds. And also um, there is a, a small provision there that some of the money would come from an assessment uh, by uh, homeowners. Okay, so that that last one there would be on property taxes. That's correct. But it doesn't. This will not change the assessment of one percent of your original value. That's correct. Okay. We are still operating under the 1978 Prop 13 rules even if the new Proposition 13 passes. Okay. So the cost of this um, this bond and paying all the interest on it will come from several sources. The general fund, uh, new development fees, which could raise the, the cost of or would raise the cost of new homes, and then also property tax assessments. But I guess it's got to come from somewhere. 
That's right. Um, here's something that I've give me a comment on this and maybe you'll get me steered in a different direction. I've always hated personally um, a, a 35 year payment on a bond because those first 20 years, it's mostly interest that you're paying back. And if it goes, if I'll give people an example, I wouldn't recommend that you refinance, do a cash out refinance on your home with a 30 year fixed rate mortgage. If you're just going to use the money to paint the house, because the paint's only going to last five to 10 years, the mortgage on it's going to last 30. So using that analogy, how does that apply to these schools? Because I do see by reading the proposition that it goes for um, uh, construction and mod uh, and modernization of public education facilities, but also for repairs, uh, facility repairs. So if some of those repairs don't last 35 years, 25 years from now, we're paying on something that's no longer there or that we have a new uh, a new bond on. How, how would you respond yeah. to that one, Liza? And your, I value your opinion, so it might differ from mine, but I value it, so like to hear it. Sure. Well, your analogy is correct. Uh, a bond act is a loan um, that has to be repaid back, and, you know, as we discussed, it'll be repaid back um, through various sources. Um, one of the things to consider is that the state constitution mandates that the government spend a certain amount of uh, the general fund in education. Most of the resources that are spent on that are going on a uh, per-student cost and education as well as uh, paying for teachers. And so a lot of the buildings and the infrastructures that the bond is seeking to fund um, is something separate that the general fund dollars don't usually um, help fund. And one thing that your voters should know is that they may recall, they think back, that this might not be the first uh, education bond that they have seen on the ballot. In fact, uh, this bond comes up about every four to five years. Um, and if you look at the proponents, it's always, you know, the legislature who's bringing it before the voters. And so it's something that continues um, to be a need for the state and that I think will continue to happen. So it's a never-ending problem. And so we will continue to see, as we have seen in the past, these education bonds being brought up uh, before the voters. It's, it's a never-ending problem. That's interesting what you just said, that it was brought this proposition was brought forward by the legislature and not by the citizens who had to gather so many signatures. How, how does that work? Sure. So the legislature has the ability to bring a particular issue before the voters. Uh, and in some cases they do. So you'll notice that when you go and vote on Tuesday, uh, the only proposition on the ballot for Tuesday will be Prop 13, the School Bond Act. And the reason for that is uh, the legislature is the only entity that can bring initiatives 
to the primary election ballot. So any uh, citizen initiatives brought forth are all going to appear in the November 2020 ballot, but only those that are brought forth by the legislature are going to be uh, voted on on Tuesday. And so that's one thing to also learn to distinguish that when you see an initiative in the primary, those are initiatives that have been brought forth by the legislature. And because um, it, it raises a significant question of um, money and getting a loan for a specific purpose, uh, the legislature has to bring it before the voters uh, for consideration. Is it possible that a initiative like this could be maybe well-intended but not really zero in on things? For example, um, this is for facility repair and construction and modernization of public schools. So let's say it wasn't well-written and 80% of the money went to repairs, uh, once again, you're paying a 35-year debt on something that might last five or 10 years. Or would you say that coming from the legislature that they're very well-written? Ooh, that's a loaded question, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's really the decision that each voter gets to make when they take the time to read the language because depending on your what your views are uh, about the uh, involvement of government and how they should be spending their money um, you might have the same understanding as the person next to you but if you come from different political backgrounds of you know you think the government is already spending enough or you believe that um, we need to do everything we can in California to make sure that our school facilities are modernized, then, you know, you might reach a different conclusion. So a lot of that is really the power of the voter and the ability of the voter to tell the government what they think should be done in a, this particular case. Um, from a political standpoint, which is not necessarily the details of the initiative and, and all of that, you know, the confusion that we keep referring to, I think it's going to cause a lot of problems uh, for this initiative because I think, as you know, people get triggered when they hear Prop 13 and there is a lot of misinformation where people think this is um, an attempt to repeal Prop 13 from 1978. And I think that will hurt the initiative. And while every school bond act in uh, previous elections has easily passed because the voters tend to support education funding, uh, this one might be in trouble because uh, the voters are a bit confused. Yeah, I'll bet they're kind of sad that they gave it that title, Prop 13. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay, well, we're about to go to our commercial break, but I want to say that I'm really happy that you gave us so many of the details. I think you you cut through the weeds so that we can see it better, and yet you didn't tell us to vote yes or no. You, It's um, just go vote, right? That's correct. All right, we'll be right back after our uh, commercial break, so stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio 940 ESPN.
Welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host, and we have with us today Liza Negrete. Of, she is the vice president for the California Association of Realtors for our political affairs department, and um, she's given us a great bit of information on the March 2020 Proposition 13. Um, and we're also going to talk now about a couple of other property tax related initiatives that are coming out on the November ballot, not this week's ballot, but in November. Um, and, and by the way, thank you so much. Once again, you didn't tell us how to vote. You gave us the information so that we can be a better informed voter. So thanks, Liza. Thank you. Hey, that's just what you do, right? <laughs> um, by the way, I served on a committee for several years with Liza, and that and and we had to make some really big votes on that committee. Um, and I could tell you, Liza provided us with the information so that we could be a better informed voter, as opposed to telling us, "Hey, this is how you vote." <laughs> of course, you wouldn't do it with a deep voice like that. I would. So um, we, we have, I, I'd like to talk about the split role that is coming up where it splits the original Proposition 13 into residential category and commercial category. Right now, all real estate is under the 1978 Prop 13, whether it be commercial agricultural, um, residential. Uh, the need for this 1978's Prop 13, I think is best explained by my experience as a child back then. Well, wait, I wasn't too much of a child. I was actually already voting by then. But I remember my parents afraid they were going to lose the house because the, the county tax assessor said, well, we need we need a budget of so many millions of dollars this year, so we're going to have to raise the assessment. We're going to charge everybody 2% of their assessment or 1.5%, and it could jump in one year. So Prop 13 comes along and says, wait, the county assessor cannot do that. 1% is all you can raise with a slight increase each year uh, for cost of, of living. Is that a good explanation, Liza? It is. It is. Um, during that time, people were being priced out of their homes because it was tied to um, the property taxes were tied to the current market value. And as home prices continued to rise, a lot of those homeowners could not afford to pay the taxes. And so um, the response and solution brought forth was the 1978. Uh, proposition 13 that uh, we all remember uh, so well even up to this day uh, and the interesting thing about that is that when that issue was developing uh, there were no issues um, necessarily happening on the commercial property side but when they saw the benefit that residential homes were getting they jumped on the wa bandwagon um, and got the same benefit and have been receiving the same benefit uh, than residential homes. And so the current split role initiative wants to change that. And there has been 
sort of a very long um, thought that commercial properties and residential properties should not be treated the same. Now, whether you agree with that or not, you know, I'm not advocating for either or, but the split rule initiative uh, is saying that the commercial properties should not be treated the same as residential properties. And it proposes that commercial properties be taxed at market rate. It doesn't change the way that residential properties uh, would be taxed. And when they say, uh, or first I think we should clarify that this is something that is uh, going to be on the ballot in November and does not yet have a number. So it's not Prop 13A or anything. That's correct. Um, You know, sometimes when groups are moving forward initiatives, they make a couple of attempts at it. And if voters look to see the measures that have qualified um, with the Secretary of State, one of the things they will see is that there is a split role initiative that has already qualified, um, and that's uh, one that they will see there. And then they will see another one that is still under a qualification. Uh, the reason why that happens sometimes is because groups bring forward a title and summary Uh, Then the government takes its time to review it, provides language for it, and then the group isn't happy with the way the government has translated the idea of their initiative. And I can tell you uh, from the chatter in Sacramento, the first um, assessment that the government made of that initiative that has already qualified is not one that is favorable to the proponents of that issue. So we know that it hasn't been polling well. So what they did is they came forth with a new version of split role, which does the exact same thing, but they were able to get better language and assessment from the government um, in hopes that um, it would appeal more to the voters. But in essence, um, it is the same idea to split uh, the tax role and treat commercial property separate than residential property. Should the um, second split role initiative qualify, uh, the sponsors of that first initiative would simply withdraw that first one from appearing on the ballot so you wouldn't see two. I see. Now, because we're here in the Central Valley, I, I have to ask the question, is agricultural farmland considered commercial property for, for this purpose? No. Um, commercial uh, property zoned as um, agricultural property is exempt, and so it does not include agricultural land. That'll make a lot of our farmers around here happy. I bet. Yeah, yeah. Um, What are some... I've heard that there's commercial loopholes that are not something that a residence would do, a residential property would do. So I've heard examples of how when a corporation goes to sell their building, they might, rather than have the property tax reassessed at the purchase price, they'll sell portions of it over a period of time. Is is that one of the loopholes that this is trying to close? Uh, Yes. Uh, So in order to avoid a a new assessment and to not pay higher taxes, 
That's exactly what happens, Don. Uh, commercial property owners, when selling a company, instead of selling it, let's say, 100%, they will sell 25% one year, maybe 30% another year, and cut it in such a way that it does not trigger a reassessment value. That is the biggest frustration with um, the proponents of this measure, that uh, commercial properties are um, taking advantage and avoiding paying their fair share of taxes. Uh, and so that's what this uh, initiative proposes to change. Has there been any talk of closed, just closing that loophole rather than lumping all commercial in? And I have an example. There's a guy I know here in the Fresno area. He's run his uh, electrical business for, for many years, and that would affect him. He, he owns the land. He owns the building, um, employs about 30 people, uh, pays a lot of taxes because he pays gas tax on all the vehicles that, that drive. Uh, he, he pays property tax on the building, uh, plus personal and corporate taxes. This could really impact the smaller commercial person. So has there been thought of just trying to close the loophole as opposed to doing doing away with all commercial? I would say that, you know, the discussion about having um, a legislation that closes a loophole has occurred, but it has not passed in the legislature, and there have been many attempts. Um, but I have to say that the proponents of the split role initiative are not very compromising on the issue. Um, they believe that it should be a full-on split that it uh, assures that commercial properties are taxed at market rate. Um, there was a discussion about a, more of a compromise of closing that loophole, as I mentioned, which actually a lot of the business groups in Sacramento were able to get behind. Um, I won't go into the detail about it just now because I'll save it for our discussion about CAR's initiative because uh, CAR's initiative includes um, a, a, an idea that has been proposed in the legislature to close that loophole, and it is not full-on split rule. Okay, that's fair enough. And we are going to go to a commercial break because I'd like to save an extra minute or two because this next segment, we're going to go into the CAR-sponsored change or initiative, and I know that you have plenty to talk about on that. So stay <laughs> tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 ESPN. Welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host. And helping us today is Liza Negrete of the California Association of Realtors. Your title there is Vice President of Political Affairs, and you're helping us with all these ballot initiatives. So thank you so much. You've, you've cleared up a lot on the Prop 13 that's coming out uh, this Tuesday. and um, But there's one coming out in November. This one is sponsored by the California Association of Realtors. I'm going to let you have at it and tell us about it. Great. This 
is, of course, um, um, one I'm very excited about because, you know, there's a lot of frustration um, in every part of the state um, with the housing crisis that we're experiencing, as well as the homelessness issue. And I think that, um, you know, this initiative uh, being sponsored by the California Association of Realtors shows that realtors really are at the forefront of trying to address the housing crisis. Um, you know, the housing crisis has been the number one issue in the legislature, but most of the solutions they've proposed and passed have been solutions um, that don't really affect supply and more are, you know, rent control and that and does not support uh, new construction of housing. Um, and, you know, CAR sees this initiative as an ability to um, encourage and uh, allow certain type of housing to open up and encourage people to move without being penalized. So um, I'm very excited that, um, you know, we're doing something outside of uh, the legislature to help the housing crisis. Yeah, excellent. And does it have a number yet? It does not have a number. I'm very excited to report that uh, we are currently submitting the signatures to the counties. So now what will happen is the counties will have to go through those signatures and uh, validate that we have enough to qualify, and we expect that within a couple of months we will hear back from them and a number will be assigned. Uh, but it, as I mentioned, we are, feel very strongly that it, it has qualified. So for our listeners today that are get, gathering this information today, how do we identify with it when it actually comes out? Is there a name? There's not a number. So a name or a tagline or something? Uh, well, you know, when the number comes out, that will be part of the message that goes along with it. Currently, uh, we are calling it the Home Ownership for Families and Tax Savings for Seniors, a committee. But as I mentioned, that's very long. And so we do uh, push forth the number once that is assigned. Okay. And I'd like to add on to what you said as a realtor that, that works every day, selling homes, working with families. I can tell you that, that it is, it, it, it does cause a lack of supply the way our current system is. Um, Cause there are some people that don't want to leave their current tax base maybe they're uh only maybe they're taxed right now at two hundred thousand. they would love to move across the river into uh, uh to soro viejo in madera county but they can't do that or they're going to lose their two thousand or excuse me two hundred thousand dollar assessment plus those are some new homes they're going to be going four hundred seven hundred thousand so you would lose your current basis and be paying two to four hundred dollars a month more in property tax. So I could yeah, see so where that affects supply. Yeah. So let let me tell you what the initiative does. Um, protecting the current property tax base of a homeowner is one of those, um, and making it portable throughout the state is only one component of that. And I'll get to the other two parts of it. But as you mentioned, right now we have a very large population of folks that bought their home 20, 30 years ago. And because of Prop 13, they have enjoyed 
the benefit of maintaining their property taxes. Um, a lot of the homes that those people live in may be either too big, um, they are too far away from children or grandchildren, um, or they're just no longer the right fit. Um, we also have folks um, that are losing their homes through wildfires or that may need to change their home because they now have a new physical disability and so their current home does not really fit their needs. So our initiative um, reaches that population and that what it does is it allows them um, to maintain their property tax base rate and go into a new home anywhere in the state regardless of price and instead of having their new tax base be at the market rate of that new home, it's actually more of a blended basis formula where the old property tax rate is taken and uh, the new taxes are not based on the new market rate. So it doesn't um, fully adjust to the new price and it helps keep property taxes lower for those uh, homeowners that are looking to move elsewhere in the state. Right now, uh, some homeowners can do that under Prop 60 and Prop 90 within some counties that have chosen to allow homeowners to do that. And so what this initiative does is it takes it statewide so that people aren't restricted to where they can take their property tax basis rate um, and apply it to a new purchase of a home. Mm -hmm. So I know what you mean about the sometimes you want to move for, for uh, to, to be closer to grandchildren. My wife, which, by the way, she said to say hello to you, Liza. Um, <laughs> Thank she, you. she really wanted to move closer to grandchildren. I didn't want to move because our property taxes were going to go up over two hundred dollars because I, we would lose the the assessment we had. Um, but all good real estate principles, you do what the wife wants, so we move, we're paying more money. <laughs> now, some people say, well, gosh, that, that's just a loophole. Uh, why should, you know, that the state's going to lose money. But I don't, here's my opinion. You're not going to, the, the counties are not going to lose money because they already have that assessment. And I'll use an example of a $200,000 assessment. They already have that. If they move up and buy a $500,000 home, they're going to pay the, the same assessment on the first $200,000 and then the increased on the three hundred, the extra three hundred. dollars So that you refer to that as the blended rate. So the counties will actually get more, plus the house that they decided to sell and move on will now go from two hundred dollars to uh, or, you know, whatever the assessment is to the new purchase price. So I see it as a plus for the counties fiscally. You know, that's how we see it, too, because we also know that there's a market that's created uh, whenever a new home is sold um, for any remodeling that is done, um, either to sell or purchase the home. Uh, but you know, the state didn't really agree with us, and in fact, they thought that uh, making tax 
rate basis portable to the rest of the state would actually cost the state millions of dollars. Um, again, we didn't agree with that assessment. Um, nevertheless, they're the ones that get to provide the fiscal analysis to the voters. And, you know, when we tried to pass that component alone on the ballot in 2018, uh, the voters rejected it. And it was not a surprise to us because uh, what that initiative said based on the fiscal analysis provided by the state is that um, if we allowed people to do that, then they would um, be taking a lot of local revenue that's expected for local governments and schools. And, you know, a lot of folks don't agree with um, taking away revenue from local governments and schools. And so that uh, component of our initiative alone in 2018 failed. Um, and when we learned the lessons of 2018, you know, we came back and reevaluated what we did and we said, well, how can we fix this? And while we were uh, working on the 2018 ballot measure, uh, there was a legislative analyst office study that came out that talked about intergenerational transfers. Currently in California, when someone inherits property, they also inherit uh, the property tax base that goes along with it. A lot of the folks live in the home, but most of them do not. In fact, a lot of them might not even live in the state. Um, and sometimes it includes multiple properties. And so uh, what the Legislative Analyst Office noted is that a lot of people are getting um, away with not paying uh, their fair share of taxes um, under the intergenerational transfers uh, tax rules that currently exist. There was a LA Times article that was published and featured Jeff Bridges, the actor. Um, he has a coastal property, uh, which he rents for $15,000 a month in Airbnb and pays annual taxes at about $5,000. And that was an example used to illustrate sort of you know, the strangeness that exists with current intergenerational tax laws. And so what happened is when that issue was exposed, we saw legislators you know, across the street salivating over getting rid of that completely and wanting to take over those funds to use them for you know, whatever issues they thought would be important. And so by adding it to our initiative, uh, it allows us to assure that any revenue that is lost through the tax portability rate um, component of our initiative can help be subsidized by this intergenerational transfer revenue that would be created. Um, and what our initiative states is that people can still inherit property and a tax rate as long as they live in the home and it only exempts the first million um, of the price difference of the home. So let's say, for example, that, you know, originally uh, the home costs $200,000 and it is now worth $1,200,000. 
because the difference is only a million, that means it's within the range of exemption. So the tax rate for that person um, would not change. Anything above that would be taxed. Um, so our initiative still protects those folks that live within the property home when they inherit it and um, helps them keep that property tax. We do believe that if we let the legislature get ahead of us and take this issue on, they would completely eliminate the ability of folks to inherit that property tax base. And so we see this as protecting um, children and grandchildren from um, for being able to take um, some of that tax benefit that currently exists. I see. So that's that's great. Uh, it's compromise. We're taking uh, taking a little, giving a little on, on this issue, and hopefully it'll all work out. Liza, in 15 seconds or less, what do you want our listeners to remember most about today's show? That aside from representing real estate, we represent homeowners first and foremost because that's at the heart of our industry. Ah, beautiful. Well said. Thank you so much, Liza Negretti, and thank you to all our listeners for tuning in today to Welcome Home Radio on 940 ESPN. Thank you.